Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive functions. This show is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. These conversations will introduce mental tools that will empower you to shift your mindset for a successful life. And now, here's your host, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome back to Full Prefrontal, where we are exposing the mysteries of executive function. I am here, as always, with our host, Sucheta Kamath. Good morning, Sucheta. Good to be with you, as always. So today, you're going to kick us off by talking about the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. Yes. So it's interesting, huh? Widow, Orphan, and the Stranger. So recently I read two books by Reverend Gregory J. Boyle. You know, he is the founder of Homeboys Industries in Los Angeles. It's the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program in the world. You know, today we are going to talk about charismatic adult and the role of a charismatic adult. And reading his book, Tattoos on the Heart, kind of made that connection for me that he is the charismatic adult uh, present in lives of so many. So, you know, Father Boyle has said that there's a lethal absence of hope in many places where he dwells and what he is really, really good at or does so effervescently or has done for the last 30 years in the urban parts of Los Angeles is offer boundless compassion to those who have experienced a setback or who have been refused or denied dignity. You know, once he was asked why he does what he does, And he replied that somewhere in the scriptures, it says, do it uh, for the widow, the orphan or the stranger. And that's why the reference that how can we offer our boundless compassion and become this amazing charismatic adult for children or even in this case, adults who have a lot of setbacks. And and that's kind of uh, a role of uh, resilience in our life that allows us to do that. You know, another quick story that reminded me in terms of in the context of education is Escalante. You know, Jaime Escalante was a teacher uh, also in Los Angeles, and he was doing two things right. He was uh, giving more time to students and he was giving them a lot of encouragement. And he was a teacher in inner city school where uh, children came from gangs and they came from broken homes. They came from deep poverty. And most uh, inner cities everywhere in the country were doing poorly except his classroom, his school. And there were some things that he was doing and he was getting it right that he had high expectations of every child. Uh, He was teaching kids how to take exams seriously. And in fact, he was teaching them how to take a test and how to kind of show up when the test is asking, posing a challenge, and how to answer those questions. And finally, he was creating a community atmosphere, a spirit of team and family, where everybody was part of the team, and everybody had to beat the system, beat the challenge, and become the A student that he was capable of. So that's what uh, we are here to talk about today. And uh, who better than my guest who can shed some light on these amazing aspects of resilience in our human undying source that allows us to rise and shine and go above and beyond our own expectations. And how can a charismatic adult help with that? So let's get started with that. Dr. Robert Brooks is my guest today, and he's a psychologist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. And 
He uh, was the former director of the Department of Psychology at McLean Hospital, a private psychiatric hospital. He also has lectured nationally and internationally and written extensively about such themes as motivation, resilience, school, school and work climate, parenting, and family relationships, and balancing our personal and professional lives. He is the author or co-author of 17 books, including some of my favorite ones, which is Raising Resilient Children, The Power of Resilience, Achieving Balance, Confidence, and Personal Strength in Your Life, Handbook of Resilience Children, and so on and so forth. I've had the privilege to meet him in person many times and especially uh, gotten to know his work and hands-on workshops that he does. He's an unbelievable human being to be with and a true inspiration. So I really am so thrilled to have him. Well, I have to tell you, Sucheta, that um, the story of Jaime Escalante and, and is such an inspiring story. And, and the film starring Edward James Olmos and Lou Diamond Phillips is, is such a great inspirational tale. And I'll be honest with you, I've never thought about that story in the context of resilience. But now I, I can't think of it any other way because talk about resilient uh, teachers and students. Fascinating way to think about that. Well, this is going to be a fascinating conversation. Let's get to it. Here is Sucheta's conversation with Dr. Bob Brooks. Dr. Robert Brooks, welcome to the podcast, Full Prefrontal, Exposing the Mysteries of Executive Function. I am very delighted to have you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Let's start with resilience. When we talk about executive function, we often talk about three important key components, the capacity to control impulses, working memory, and mental flexibility. I feel resilience addresses at least two, if not all three ingredients of the successful self-management and strong executive function. Can you start us off with uh, the definition of resilience and how do researchers study resilience? Because most often we witness resilience in, in action or we witness post-traumatic event or post-challenge. So can you shed some light on that? Certainly. First of all, without wanting to be overly simplistic, resilience for me is the capacity to bounce back from adversity. It doesn't mean you're not going to face adversity, but when difficult situations arise, you have the ability to, and that's where it ties to executive function, you have the ability to think before you act, you have the ability to regulate your emotions, and to really then think through solutions to different problems. Most of the research, initial research on resilience, looked at people, especially as children, who had undergone great adversity. They grew up in war zones, they were abused, they had difficult, great difficulty in school, and then the question was raised, what helps these people to bounce back as they grow and, and develop? In my work, I've actually taken a broader stance and said what we learn from people who have faced adversity and overcome that adversity, why can't we apply to all individuals? So that's why I basically started asking the question, how does a resilient person see the world and themselves differently from others? And what are the skills that they possess that people who are not resilient do not possess? I see. And I'm going to quickly throw in a, in a, a funny situation. Yesterday, we had a guy come in to instill an electric fence around the house so that our dog can roam around freely. And he came to give the instructions and train us with the dog. Same time, a pizza delivery guy came uh, to deliver pizzas to the house. And my husband, with a dog on, one uh, on the leash on one hand, and then opened the door and took the pizza boxes on the other 
and the dog jerked him and the both the boxes fell flat uh, <laughs> upside down and the the pizza delivery man looked at my husband my husband looked at me me looked at uh, i looked at the pizza delivery man and i just had to give the cue that it's okay i said uh, honey it's totally fine anyway it's going to be all go in the stomach and once my cue came everybody was relieved <laughs> Wow, you you have a lovely way of lessening stress right away. What you what you did there, of course, also is you know you have to put things in perspective. And as you described it, I started to laugh because I could just picture what happened uh, there. Resilience comes in you know in all forms. I mean, it really has to do for me with how effectively one copes, and that's where, as I say, it ties a lot to executive functioning. But the other thing is. You know, I think almost from birth, if we look at what are the components of what I call a resilient mindset, we can help children to develop that at a young age, but it goes throughout the the whole lifespan. You know, I've applied my work to children, adults into our senior years and what helps us to be resilient and what helps to find some meaning and purpose to our lives. So the concept. So what are the components uh, you would say? So one is to find meaning and purpose. So you yeah, never well, like lose like, anger. Yeah, I would even like to get into more detail. One of the things that's uh, in, of interest to me, and I could spend hours on this, but I'll just summarize it is, and I really emphasize this more and more in my work, that in order to be resilient, you have to feel that you're making a positive difference in the life of others. And we could start at a very early age. In, in research I did related to school climate, one of the best memories people have of school is when they were asked to help out. And as you look at that, when I work with people around what helps people to be resilient, I always look at, does this person, whether they're five years old or 75 years old, feel that they're helping out or making a difference? Another key component is how we deal with mistakes. You know, that's why story, if we look at it in terms of a mistake that uh, took place, is resilient people see mistakes as things to learn from, while people who are not as resilient become very frustrated and often feel they'll always make mistakes, they'll often back away from things, they'll use coping strategies that are not as effective. There's wonderful research taking place that I use in therapy and that I suggest people, uh, you know, teachers use in classrooms, that one has to really prepare people for obstacles. So in my therapy work, when we work out strategies, say with the patient of whatever age, I'm always asking, what obstacles do you think may come up and how are we going to deal with these obstacles? Well, this reminded me, one of the training components that uh, when I train parents, I feel that there are two parts that if um, uh, kind of combined together, that uh, parents can create an environment that promotes resilience. What I say is structure is really essential. So there's some sort of predictability and consistency in the household. And then I, I ask parents to slowly introduce a wrench. A, a wrench is a planned interruption where mm-hmm. child is told that I will. there's something we're going to plan, but the plan may not go per plan. And then that wrench comes such as, you know, we're going to go to Six Flags. And, and that's a plan for Saturday. And then parents get up and say, I'm so sorry, but the plans have been canceled. We're going to go to Six Flags tomorrow. And then that becomes a lesson of learning how to adjust to this unanticipated interruption or a roadblock. And in my practice, I see so many kids and even youngsters, uh, young adults, completely bent out of shape when things don't go per plan or the smallest interruption completely throws them off. 
So what you're saying really uh, strikes a chord with me. Yeah, it's a very important thing. And how you word it is just lovely. I think there are too many kids who really don't know how to deal with setbacks. Sometimes, or a lot of times, in my experience, parents, very loving parents, will rush in and solve problems for kids rather than having uh, the kids learn how to solve it themselves. So by basically saying, you know, there are these wrenches or these obstacles, and then saying, let's think about how we're going to deal with it. Think about the skills. You have to think before you act. You have to be a good problem solver. You have to anticipate, you know, what may come up. You have to think of different options that come up. It's impossible to be resilient if you're not able to cope effectively, you know, with mistakes. The other thing that ties to, and, you know, what you had brought up is one of the key characteristics of resilient people throughout the lifespan is resilient people learn to focus on what they have control over rather than things they have no control over at all. Uh, once When I mentioned that, someone said that's like the serenity prayer. But one of the things I have found is if a person keeps basically what I will say is a victim mentality, like why did I have to have this problem or why did I have to be born you know, with problems learning? If they continue to say, why me? It is very difficult for them to move ahead. But with people I've seen, say, with executive uh, functioning problems, if they can move beyond saying, I have trouble, you know, planning or I have trouble with some other uh, kinds of activities, and they then move to the mindset, but I had no control over having been born with some of these problems. What I have control over is my attitude and response to it. And that is really a resilient person. I There's research to show Adults with learning differences who constantly say, why did I have to be born with a learning difference are going to do much more poorly in life than someone who says, I had no control over being born with a learning difference. What I have control over is how can I learn to really adjust to it, uh, to deal with it in a productive way. You know, and this reminds me of a lot of research about children with uh, dyslexia or, you know, learning disability when they go to special schools where all the children have a similar diagnosis, they tend to do better in terms of the way they relate to their own learning challenges, learning differences. Mm -hmm. I find in my work that uh, many, many kids who come to my practice in their late uh, adolescence, uh, even young adulthood, when they are in high school or college, they have completely, you know, skated with this notion that I'm smart, I'm capable, I'm brilliant. And now people want so much from me that I don't care. So they have really used their intelligence to do well on tests, but they never have dis- developed the discipline to study properly or organize themselves or take notes or uh, develop all those skills that uh, make you more accountable to yourself. And then suddenly they somebody tells them that you have a diagnosis of ADHD or executive dysfunction and they are discombobulated. They have tremendous difficulty accepting that and they come from that, that fixed mindset that, I cannot be the one, you know, why, why me? (laughs) Why now? Yeah. Well, you see what you just brought up is very important. When we, when a diagnosis is used and kids find out diagnoses, what the message should be is, and I'll give you an actual example of a nine-year-old boy who asked me, why did God choose me to be the one with ADHD? So already he was somewhat in a victim mentality. Like I was chosen by God. This is terrible. And one of the things I said is, Now that we know you have ADHD, the good thing is that there are things and actions we can take and you can take, which will help you with it. So the diagnosis is all right, 
you don't want someone to take it and it almost like you know feel like see I'm ruined for life. But instead, you always want to create a problem solving attitude. I, I you know I always say in my work that resilient people see problems as things to be solved rather than overwhelmed by. So when Ooh. there is a problem, you don't want the person to feel like I will not ever overcome this like a fixed mindset, but instead to look at what are the strategies I can use to deal with this problem. And it's a very important thing. If, if any child or adult faces a task and feels they're going to fail, you know, years ago, Martin Seligman talked about the notion of learned helplessness, then they're just going to give up. I think it's our job as parents, as educators, as therapists to look at how do we change mindsets so that people see problems as things they can learn from and that they cope, can cope more effectively with. Yeah, you make a very important point. I think I find this a lot that uh, several practices I'll mention that a, a child is experiencing um, a difficulty in his academic learning from kindergarten to, let's say, 12th grade. And then this kid eventually goes to college. But it's number one, other people are notice, noticing these challenges and they are informing the child that this is a problem or they are reporting to each other or to parents. The child is rarely in that conversation. Secondly, I think uh, then when the diagnosis happens, for example, a child goes to an educational psychologist or neuropsychologist and they get a diagnosis, the results are never discussed clearly with the child. And most importantly, as you said, the diagnosis is never delivered as a powerful tool that says, hey, listen, now we know why you are having trouble. This is so much better. When I do training, one of the things I'm always keeping in the forefront is uh, your brain is trainable. It's an amazing instrument. We just need to polish it and practice it and polish it and use it. <laughs> so sounds like you are encouraging that, giving them power to recognize their own power. Yeah. As a matter of fact, what you just brought up just resonates with me. Uh, for years, I worked at a psychiatric hospital and we did a lot of evaluations of kids. And the same thing, sometimes, you know, you do, our, and if they were inpatients, even more so, and sometimes what I started to believe is the kids, while they were the ones who had all this testing, sometimes were left out of uh, the feedback session. So what I actually started to do is we had to write, I always had to write a report for the parents in the school, but I also would write like a one page letter to the child or the adolescent, basically summarizing things. You know, mentioning what some of the why the child seeing me mentioning some of the areas that were problematic, but also I always would put in the steps we could start to take. What that did was, and some parents have told me that their child held on to that report into their adult lives. What that did was it really started to empower uh, the child to understand his or her problems, but also provided a sense of hope because there were things that could be done. And it wasn't a mystery anymore. I mean, one of the things that is overwhelming is I've often asked my audiences, did any of you ever face a problem that you didn't even know where to start? And everyone raises their hand. They, all of us have. And I said, imagine if almost any problem you faced, you felt that way. And that is how a number of children and adults feel. So they get overwhelmed. They can't think of solutions to problems. So the more we can develop in children and adults, the notion that when problems arise, there can be solutions. We can think about the obstacles. We can think about what are the ways of problem solving. 
uh, people feel what I, in my writings, I call it a greater sense of personal control, control over your own life. And it, I have found it's one of the most powerful features of uh, resilience at any age. Bob, that speaks so, so much uh, to my heart. I think this uh, uh, personal letter uh, is an amazing, amazing method. And uh, I'm going to highly encourage even parents to do that. You know, how about, you know, parents who are raising children and they themselves are facing obstacles in raising that child who's going through difficulties. Maybe they can even practice sending, writing a little blurb that the child can look up and read and and uh, kind of relate to and find the res- that becomes a whole, you know, a resource for uh, finding hope within uh, these uh, difficult situations. So as you are um, giving us an overview of the what qualities uh, the resilient mind possesses, you were saying that they are much they have a sense of purpose. They are very good at dealing um, with mistakes. Then they are also much more um, ready to tackle the problems with a problem-solving mindset. Anything else they do well, I wanna, very well? Well, I want to mention something that is the basic foundation even before those. In all the research that's been done on resilience, when uh, researchers have asked people who have overcome adversity and are now much more hopeful and optimistic, and when they've asked, what do you think was the most important thing in your childhood or adolescence, as difficult as it was, for you to be more hopeful and optimistic now? The number one answer in all the research is there was at least one person along the way who truly believed in me and stood by me. And I'm mentioning this because one of my heroes who died a number of years ago in psychology, his name was Julius Siegel. He called that person a charismatic adult in a child's life. And although the word charismatic is often misunderstood, his definition was that is an adult from whom a child or adolescent gathers strength. And I'll just add, even as adults, we need charismatic adults. The reason I want to emphasize this is I think nowadays there's so much emphasis on different mindsets and changing fix to growth mindsets and, you know, some wonderful research. But I think what is often lost is the first strategy one should think about is how do I develop? a relationship with a child or an adult where they feel comfortable, where they trust us and whatever. And I sometimes have felt with high stakes testing and so many other things, we lose sight of that. You've heard this before or said in different ways, children don't care what you know until they first know you care. So actually, in my workshops, I actually spend the beginning of my workshops and presentations focusing on the relationship. It's out of the relationship that a resilient mindset can develop. So charismatic adult, and I have heard you speak about that many, many times. But for our listeners, I think this is such an intriguing and important concept that the responsibility begins with the adult in the child's life rather than fully and solely depending on the child showing up with all these skills and capacities to become even further resilient. So can you give us, uh, you, I've heard you talk about these uh, self-check questions, you know, the inventory of questions you can ask yourself uh, to see if you are an, a charismatic adult for uh, someone in your life, well, or particularly a child. Can you walk us through some of these? Well, I, um, one of the things is, you know, when I read it, when Julius Siegel, the psychologist, uh, you know, used the term. I started thinking about what helps us to be a charismatic adult, what helps people to feel that they can trust us with kids. So one of the things, another major part of my uh, workshops has to do with the whole issue of empathy. 
Because in order to be a charismatic adult, you really have to think about how you come across. So I ask questions like this, and, and anyone could think about it. It could be a parent, it could be a teacher, a therapist. How would I hope this child describe me? What words would I hope this child used to describe me? What do I say and do on a regular basis so that the child is likely to use these words to describe the words that I hope they use that they will actually use? I Right from the start, I asked, after just one meeting with a child, what if we interviewed the child and asked them to describe the meeting and what they thought about us, what would they say? And then, because I always believe in action plans, what do we intentionally say or do so that the child is likely to describe us after even just one meeting in a way we would hope they described us? So there's a whole host of questions I really started to ask. For people to start to think about this, every time we interact with a child or an adult, that other person forms words and images to describe us. And we should think very seriously, what do we want them to be? If we want to be a charismatic adult in a child's life, then we have to think about, we want them to trust us. But I get very specific. What's, how, in what way? We, some research I found was we want them to feel we're accessible, you know, uh, that we're accessible to them. Well, how is that shown? So it really gets us to think about the impact we are having on the life of another child. If we have to, uh, in any way, give feedback that you know to a child, how do we do it in a way where they can hear? Uh, another couple of my favorite questions is, in anything we say or do, what do we hope to accomplish? And are we saying or doing in a way where the other person is most likely to hear us? Because I, I, I actually read interviews where right away everyone gets defensive or when I meet with, yes yeah where I meet with parents I will say to them especially after I've done an evaluation that I'm going to go over some things and I say this if anything I say does not sound like their son or daughter please let me know it's not that you're right or I'm right or you're wrong or I'm wrong but together we can figure out why we may have these uh, differences so there are questions which really start to create what I call in my writings a motivating environment, an environment where everyone really wants to work together. And I also, one other question which I have used for years, which many people have told me, you know, is just, a, you know, just very helpful is this. I say to them, if I ask you a question and you're not certain why I'm asking, don't answer the question. Ask me why I'm asking. And the reason I do that is too often the questions we raise, kids or their parents or other adults really are not certain why we're asking. And an example I give is I ask people, have you ever had a doctor ask you a question and you wonder why they're asking? It just creates more anxiety. And the whole approach I take is I want, whether it's a five-year-old or a 50-year-old, I want them to really feel they're collaborating with me in terms of helping them to become more resilient. So I'll give you my list of things, what I would like people to say about me, particularly children when I'm dealing with okay. with them, that I would like them to think that I am patient and I'm accessible and I'm thoughtful. I am eager to help. I'm knowledgeable and I'm willing to collaborate and change my mind. I would love that to come across. So you've given me a lot to think about that. Well, how do I confirm that they feel that way about me? Right, because I love the words you use. And just knowing you're a little, I, I, I think you, the people you work with would describe you in that way. 
But then, you know, when I have more like it's an hour uh, or so with a, a client or I'm, or I'm supervising, I will then take each of those and say, what are one or two things you think you do, recognizing that every kid we see and every parent or adult may have different impressions, but what are one or two things you specifically do that is likely to for them to, feed, to describe you in that way? I always, you know, having done a lot of supervision of uh, mental health professionals and educators, I really like to get very nitty gritty in that regard. And the same thing when I work with parents. If they say, I want my kids to, whatever, loving, I mean, it's such a broad term. I say, what are one or two things? You know, I want my kids to think I'm accessible to them or I'm supportive. Okay, what are one or two things you might do? What I've been told is questions like that really get you to reflect on your role and how you are coming across and help you to become that charismatic adult in a child's life. You know, this sounds to me like a theory of mind issue. I think reading the minds of others, understanding others' intentions, behaviors, beliefs, and then adjusting our and tweaking our own behaviors, attitudes, and, and beliefs, or responding in a particular way. So it's a song and dance of reading the minds of others. And I find that uh, when I work with parents, particularly those uh, on the spectrum or those who have, you know, complex diagnosis, the parents themselves don't have the highest form of empathy. They are not good at reading minds of others. They're not very good at doing an internal check that am I presenting myself in a way that I claim myself to be? So mm-hmm. how do we redirect those people who lack the awareness to have these skills where you become more charismatic person? Not that you lack the capacity, but they just don't have the insight. Right. Themselves. Well, part of it is I share my philosophy if you will, you know, a theory of mind, if you will, with others. So if I'm asking parents to think of, about how they come across, I ask for very specific examples. But one of the things I, about how they relate to their kids, but your comment has stirred up so many different thoughts. So I'll try to be as coherent as I can here, because one, I explain to parents why empathy is important, putting yourself in the shoes of another person. Two is, I we, we will often go over, because I find you need concrete examples for people to learn. And what your comment triggered also is, one of my books is called Raising Resilient Children with Autism Spectrum Disorders. And the very diagnosis of being on the you know autism spectrum suggests that the person, that child or if adult, has difficulty with empathy. Because empathy is both a cognitive skill, you have to put yourself the perspective of another person, take another perspective, and it's an affective skill or emotional. You have to know what emotions are about. So what your comment brings up is how do you promote greater empathy in people, one, who have not not basically used it, either because they themselves have not learned to be empathic or it's been difficult because, let's say, some are on the autism spectrum. Daniel Goleman, uh, who wrote Emotional Intelligence, and empathy is an important part of emotional intelligence. In his book, Emotional Intelligence, says he feels empathy can be learned. And others feel you can start helping to be people be empathic. So a little long with it, but in, in terms of your response, it, it's a process. Let's say I'm working with parents or teachers. It's a process of let's put ourselves in the child's shoes. Now, Sometimes I've heard from parents and teachers explanations that they have of why a child acts the way they do that really work against developing a greater relationship. I've actually had 
heard this, you know, my child is always trying to provoke me. My child doesn't really care on and on. One of the things I've learned is in helping parents or teachers or others be empathic towards children, you have to be empathic towards them. So another guiding principle in my work is when I hear people give their explanation of why they think kids are acting in a certain way, and I know it's working against developing a good relationship, I will say that is one way of thinking about things because I really avoid saying I disagree with that. And I really avoid saying that's a, you know, that's not a very good idea. I will say that's one way of thinking about things. May I share with you another way? Because mm-hmm. if you make people more defensive, they're not going to be able to hear what you have to say at all. They're just going to get even more and more defensive. So over the years, I've looked at the many situations that I felt I did not handle very well. And then I asked myself, in what ways could you have handled it differently? Because what it gets to is, what do you hope to accomplish? But are you saying or doing it in a way where the other person will be most likely to hear you? So, you know what? It sounds to me that uh, it boils down to how well are we able to manage other people's emotions? Because if we are attuned with their emotions and then we recognize the impact our conversation, our style, our verbiage is going to have on them and we are able to change and shift, then we are going to likely to reach them, impact them more positively. So a lot of this, uh, again, the metacognitive processes are involved in being that charismatic adult, but even effective therapist, effective parent, effective educator, or effective boss, (laughs) name it. Um, Yeah, it's. but uh, you know what? I'll just say one thing because you said something very interesting. The first step is how we manage our own feelings before we yes, of course with others. Because, you know, Daniel Goleman, another what he said is a basic foundation of emotional intelligence is self-awareness. Are you aware of what triggers your feelings and how you handle them? And, uh, you know, one of the things I've often said to people, it's very easy to be empathic and understanding towards those people whose ideas totally agree with our own. It's very easy to be empathic towards kids who really listen all the time to us. I don't know if that's ever possible. And I say the true test of empathy, which I learned when I was running a, a you know a school in a locked door unit of a psychiatric hospital. True test of empathy is to be empathic when you're upset, annoyed, or disappointed in another person. And you know we could be very frustrated with kids, but if that frustration leads us not to be empathic and to assume that. You know, the kid is, as one parent said, out to get me. We're going to have a lot, you know, of difficulty in really reaching and working with that child. Bob, these are just fascinating topics. And I know you could talk on these topics for hours. And I'm so sorry to have such a short uh, time with you. But as we come to an end, I wanted to ask you a question that is there any relationship between resilience and creativity? I find that people who bounce back are really good with problem solving and they the way they circumvent, they have um, a way to see a potential uh, in the, the when they see a door close, they actually begin to look for a window and a crack. They have the capacity to convert the crack into a window. You know what I mean? So do yes. you know anything of that sort or how well, do we understand it? Yeah, I, I don't know the research exactly. Uh, you know, I, I know uh, once reading some papers on creativity, even people's views of creativity could differ greatly. Just like when I co-edited a book on hand, a called Handbook of Resilience in Children, I was, you know, certainly learned a lot how different people even view the concept of resilience. 
But if we view creativity, as, as you said, uh, really as being able to see things that had not been seen before, as really uh, being very flexible, whatever, and looking at different options and being good problem solvers, I would say then it does go along with the same characteristics that go into being resilient. Because to be resilient, you've got to be able to think of solutions that you may not have thought about before. You've got to think about different options. You've also, to be creative, I almost think you have to have a sense of hope that there are other solutions out there. Part of being resilient is being, you know, being hopeful. And creativity also involves, for me, that you're, if one is creative, you're going you're gonna to fall on your face several times as you try different things. And, uh, you know, people often talk about the light bulb in Edison and, you know, how many mistakes were made before the light bulb was uh, developed. You have to have a mindset that says, each time I fail, I have to learn from this. And what is it that I can do differently next time? And, you, you know, some of my readings of creativity, that's a very basic part of being creative. So I would say, yes, there would be some link in terms of the characteristics, certainly, of a creative person and one who is resilient. Got it. Well, thank you so much, Bob, for your wisdom and, and your patience and most amazing way of describing complex matter. Uh, thank you for being on the podcast today. And I can't wait to have you again for the second part where, where we discuss uh, some parts of parenting. So thank you so much again. Well, thank you. And thank you for your wonderful examples and insights. All right. Well, Sucheta, as we both suspected, fascinating conversation with Dr. Brooks. Gosh, whole new appreciation for this idea of resilience. Any initial thoughts about it? Yeah, resilience is uh, one of the best ways to describe executive function, the positiveness with which we adapt when executive functions emerge or are most finessed. That's what ex resilience looks like. So American Psychological Association defines resilience as the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, or significant sources of stress. In short, it is one's ability to bounce back from difficult experiences, as Bob was talking about. Now, the difficult experiences can range from conflict within the family or tumultuous relationships, serious illness, or chronic ongoing health crisis, or even workplace pressures and financial stressors, all that can contribute to that distress, which requires adaptive response and bouncing back from. Now, when the research uh, process began, or particularly in the psychological literature, it talks about more serious threats from which one needs to bounce back. But uh, resilience can be put to test in the everyday process as well. You know, you um, trying to, you know, take a shortcut and then to uh, come to find out that the tree has fallen down or you leave the house in a hurry and then you get into your car and then come to do groceries and find that you left your wallet at home. So those are kinds of things that are adversities. They may not be tragedies and they may not cause significant threat, but you do need to bounce back from that. So research has shown that people uh, by and large are resilient and resilience is remarkably ordinary response to life's condition and being human means to err, which also brings sadness, disappointment and pain. And from that, we need to rise like a phoenix. Being resilient doesn't mean it eradicates negative experiences or blocks off adversity, but rather it means that uh, you get inoculated from negative impact of that and become stress hardy. So finally, the, the conversation with Bob kind of triggered a lot of thoughts that 
Researchers and psychologists agree that resilience is not a personality trait, which means it's not you either have it or you don't, but rather it's developed as an ability and it entails responding to distressful situations with skillful behaviors and actions with great finesse and uh, expertise. So yes, just like any skill, you can practice it and you can get better at it. But if you don't have the skill because you haven't practiced it, you may be very amateur at it. Well, walk us through how to define or understand when our resilience is actually put to the test. Yeah, so there are adversities or roadblocks, as I was talking about earlier, that that cause you to have to adjust. And if it's not significant tragedy and, and adversity or stress-induced challenge, then what is it? For ordinary everyday life, I think it's the mistakes. To me, the biggest uh, source of stress uh, is the mistakes we made. And that uh, mis- making of mistakes and rising from those mistakes, whether you accept the mistakes, whether you say, oh, oh, my bad, I need to respond in a different way, or you course correct because of the mistake, or you completely change the way you are pursuing goals. All that requires, uh, you know, uh, testing your resilience or or putting your adaptive mind to um, perform well. But what I like about framing uh, executive function or adaptive skills from the lens of resilience that it also encompasses mindset. So it's not just what you do, but what you feel about what you do and how you think and how you behave continuously based on how you uh, feel about things. And and that's what it means to uh, check whether you're resilient or not. Particularly in the context of children, uh, what parents and teachers have to really work on and put their own resilience to test or watch the child's resilience being put to test is hold back the urge to rush and rescue the child. And what uh, best uh, to witness is uh, to see the child think how he thinks before he acts, how he anticipates and how he considers all the options in front of. So those are the everyday situations that put our resilience to test. And witnessing someone else's adaptability is the way you learn to hold back your reaction and bring out your response. Well, I'm, I'm still thinking about this idea of resilience being a developable, a developable skill. Right. I mean, so you, this this resilient mindset, I mean, it's really it really is critical to understand it because everyone's going to have challenges and, and issues and we've got to cultivate and test this so that we understand our capability. Right. Yeah, exactly. So this is my third takeaway uh, for our listeners. I would love to summarize uh, it as well. Is the what are the components as uh, Bob was talking about, you know, what are the components of resilient mindset and his work along with uh, Dr. Sam Goldstein, who I have had. As my guest, you know, they they talk uh, very specifically and lay this out. You know, here's four components of that resilient mindset. Number one is they have a strong sense of meaning and purpose that this exactly anchors them to the, uh, onto their path and reminds them every step of the way, particularly when they're making mistakes or having uh, to handle roadblocks, that they are on this path and uh, the obstacles that they're encountering are to be expected and to be uh, sidelined or or moved out of the out of the way so that you can continue to stay on this path. So to me, this is like the perspective that um, somebody who has great resilient mindset has that 
they their actions are driven by meaning and purpose. The second thing is uh, such students, children or adults are driven to making a positive difference in the life of others. So this also is part of that empathic mindset that how do I how do I offer my actions to others and how do I join this greater you know, mission to serve the greater good? The third is that they are far better equipped to deal with mistakes. You know, they see mistakes as something, uh, as Bob was saying, to learn and grow from and not uh, as a personal uh, folly. And it's not an indicative of a permanent state of uh, life, but it's a temporary uh, state of adjustment. And the fourth part uh, that's makes up the resilient mindset is they're very good at coming up with most effective coping strategies. They're adjusting and adapting, but in the most resourceful way. They're not just trying to get through, but they're they're coming to the other side with a great smile on their face. A resilient mind has a far greater sense of personal control, particularly in challenging situations and crises. And this sense of control leads to uh, thinking about the obstacles much more clearly and optimistically. Uh, It uh, leads to engaging in innovative problem solving. And finally, it brings about the necessary adaptive shift. And that's so important for all of us to think about, because when we talk about training, this is what we are training people, children to develop. Yeah, no, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, But I also want you to go into something else here. I, ever since you mentioned Jaime Escalante at the top of the, the top of the show uh, and defined him as a charismatic adult, I, I've been thinking about the the people who had influence on me over my life, and I, I guess I would define them also as charismatic adults. Talk more about that and how you would actually define that. Yeah, charismatic adult. That's my one of my favorite, you know, takeaways from this discussion with Bob. You know, he writes a, a monthly article, and I will be attaching um, that resource on my website here. But he talks about Julius Siegel's work, and he describes, I'm quoting, that he devoted much of his life as a psychologist to exploring what, what helps at risk at-risk youngsters to survive and thrive, uh, wrote a brief article in 1988 for Brown University Child Behavior and Development Newsletter. And in that, he defines charismatic adult as a person with whom they can identify and from whom they gather strength. So a charismatic adult offers safety, security, unconditional acceptance, which contributes to the child feeling assured and it's proven to be critical element uh, of success within school. So why don't we focus on becoming charismatic adult as we serve children or as we teach them, mentor them, raise them even? So what would that look like in the school context? A student who develops a close and nurturing relationship with at least one caring adult has shown to have tremendous impact what that, for that student And if a child comes from a high-stress home environment or of abuse or neglect uh, with instability, unpredictability, and general uncertainty, if that child is assured that there is someone uh, whom he or she knows and can turn to and who will act as an advocate or will be a champion for that child, imagine the comfort and ease that child is going to experience. So parents and teachers must first and foremost recognize and appreciate the extent to which uh, their presence has an influence on the child's inner well-being. And secondly, they can prioritize such that they use their influence to enrich the spaces within which the child lives and operates. And not just one, but all situations. You know, this reminds me of a story of a famous makeup artist, Bobby Brown, who now 
you know, took her company to a stage of success where it's worth billions of dollars. But when she was in college in Arizona, one day she came home and sat at the kitchen table and said to her mom that I, I don't like school, mom, I, it's boring. And what ensued is, is a perfect example of becoming that charismatic being, that charismatic parent that I'm talking about. So, you know, the mom heard her loud and clear. And instead of saying, suck it up and move on, go back to school, uh, you know, semester was about to start in a week or two, she said something wonderful. She said, forget everything. If today was your birthday, and if you could do anything, how would you spend your day? And Bobby Brown thought for a minute and immediately replied that I would go to the largest department store. This was in suburbs of Chicago and play with makeup. So mom declared, then that's what you're going to do. And and Bobby Brown was so surprised. And she said, that's what I'm going to do. Is there a school for it? And so mom said, we'll find out. And so that's what a charismatic adult is able to do, you know, is is infusing this optimism and, and promise so that uh, the child feels that there's hope and there is a way to affect uh, that uh, control over one's life, which is, of course, leads to motivation, intrinsic and extrinsic. Mm, great stuff. I'm going to be thinking a lot about this idea of charismatic adults uh, long after we wrap this episode. Great, great stuff. You know, and I'm still thinking about what I mentioned earlier is that I, I'm still noodling on this notion that that resiliency is is a skill that you can de- develop. So talk more about that. Talk about how you actually train for resilience. I mean, and what does that training look like? Yeah. So as you know, Todd, I love to summarize these profound discussions that I get to have with these incredible speakers. And and Bob is truly a wealth of knowledge, and his advice resources that he's produced are are really worth uh, everybody's time. And so I get a chance to condense uh, his message as well as the advice that I have gathered from other incredible speakers. And I find teaching children, adolescents or adults to face obstacles with great preparedness to, so that the confidence can be built is the process that we as uh, professionals need to master. And so I, you know, I often um, get, uh, when I was younger clinician, I often got this question asked that, you know, we are not psychologists, how can we counsel? And and I find this a strange question. Counsel to me is uh, giving advice that leads to preparedness and building of skills. So giving advice uh, that leads to building of skills is what I do. And I find that a few things that can need to be done is one, to become more tolerant of frustration and sense of anxiety and sense of anger or uh, fear that gets invoked in you when you make mistakes. So that's the first skills training needs to happen. Second is to teach children, adolescents or adults uh, this problem-solving mindset, how to evaluate a problematic condition and how to generate multiple solutions and put them to test. So just like a dry run, you know, put uh, try them out one by one and then make the determination which is the best solution. The third that comes to my mind is a coping strategies. You know, how to effectively cope and, and shift strategies in midst of uh, coping and, and really um, not really uh, believe that uh, if things are not going well, then you are not uh, using the best coping method methods. You know, um, just some of the uh, examples that uh, come to my mind is I once read that the Newton South uh, High School in Massachusetts, you know, which is, uh, you know, it's in uh, New England, as you can imagine, you know, uh, in Boston, and there are so many Ivy League schools as well as top top-notch schools and uh, 12th grade students um, can feel the pressure of getting admitted to these top schools. 
And so they created a bulletin board called Wall of Shame. And what they invited the students to do is, is you know, uh, tack those rejection letters to this Wall of Shame. So it's, um, it's you know, clearly displayed and, and visible. So the failure is not indication of you having failed as a person, but you having received a unfavorable response. And that's what it's all about, or that's where it needs to be. Uh, another, and uh, Bob uh, writes this in his article, you know, that um, uh, seniors from, um, in seniors uh, rejected from MIT now have this um, web, uh, you know, MIT counselors and staff have created this words of uh, uh, reassurance and sympathy where, uh, you know, there's an online blog that uh, people who got rejected can share their disappointment. Um, and so they get to vent. And once that uh, you vent, it's cleared and it's out of your system. So <laughs> what a way to, you know, kind of train yourself to um, get through these difficult times. Yeah, no, no kidding. No kidding. Gosh. Uh, lots, of, lots of takeaways here. A lot of, lot of game changing takeaways. Uh, any final thoughts before we wrap uh, uh, this week's episode? Yeah, my conversation with Bob made me think a lot about uh, this important topic, you know. So uh, here's what I would say that we are all searching for, craving for, longing for, and aiming for a state of equilibrium, you know, where we are in harmony with ourselves and with our surroundings. Life is built in, life has this inbuilt program to restore itself. And we see that in nature. Uh, you know, we have resilient trees, forests, corals, habitats, uh, there are resilient structures, systems, even organizations. And above all, there is uh, resiliency in humans. Children, couples, families, and even communities uh, can inculcate, in, uh, exhibit, and finesse their response to distress. Uh, so what do they all have in common? You know, if we ask that question, this is what comes to my mind. That, you know, they have this internal elasticity to bounce back. Uh, these individuals and systems uh, revitalize themselves with the helper and support from something greater than themselves. And that is life's purpose. And they, uh, the stress doesn't break them down. They are stress hardy. So there are mentors uh, or charismatic adults that promote the emergence of resilience. And then there's there are internal qualities that makes it easy for individuals to adapt successfully. And we uh, all are responsible uh, in fostering resilience in others, particularly children. But we must also take a look at ourselves and find out what are those internal qualities that makes us adapt successfully. So um, changing one's own ways is critical here. Um, you know, it's easy to tell someone to change, but it's quite, quite a quest to take a hard look at oneself. And it requires to be flexible and understanding. It takes patience and hard work. <laughs> and that's why making uh, change in self is the highest form of resilience and implementing this change is very hard. And so not to minimize difficult obstacles one is going to uh, run into, like my t conversation with Carol Tavris, you know, we talked about uh, cognitive dissonance. Uh, cognitive dissonance is one fundamental block in making a change in oneself when we face mistakes or when we find this um, in uh, internal conflict that rubs us the wrong way. But the reasons for self-change are abundant. It will enrich our personal relationship. It will bring peace and harmony. We will have more partners uh, who can aid in our effort to achieve goals and attain success. And above all, it will help us elevate our lives. And that's, to me, uh, the most uh, willing person who has demonstrated resilience to make changes in oneself is the charismatic adult. So isn't that win 
and win for all. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, goodness gracious. Lucky you and me, we get to have Dr. Brooks on the show again next week. Uh, can't wait for that one. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. On behalf of our host, Jada Kamath, and all of us at Cerebral Matters, thank you for tuning in and listening today. And we look forward to seeing you again next week for our second conversation with Dr. Bob Brooks. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal.